Welcome back to the Fahrenheit Podcast. I'm Farron, the founder of Fahrenheit and your host of the Fahrenheit Podcast. For those of you who are new here, welcome, and we hope you enjoy the ride. We are an audio destination at the intersection of life, work, and play. Here we tackle how to interchangeably build your brand, your team, and your life, and how the same rules we take to building brands can be applied to your everyday. We celebrate the blurred lines between founders and followers, brand architects and life livers, problem solvers and go-getters. We share, we open the lines, we open the walls, and we break down the barriers of what it means to live a truly human experience. We've had quite the year and a lot has changed. And when I thought about coming back on air and having these conversations with you, I really wanted to open up this season with somebody that's left a deep imprint on me. Someone who is a continuous teacher, mentor, and friend. There was really no one that fit the bill quite like Jesse Israel. Jesse and I actually met in college and we've built our careers in parallel. I've watched him grow from a record label exec to the leader of one of the largest mass meditations in the country. Through a unique blend of meditation, community building, and uplifting leadership, Jesse helps people and organizations become their most powerful. He's the founder of the mass meditation movement, The Big Quiet. He was the former founder of the record label turned tech fund, Cantora. He signed multiple platinum bands like MGMT. He has led some of the largest meditations in the world. He has spoken at Fortune 500 companies. He's taught meditation to the next generation of leaders in stadiums and in living rooms. But one of the things that I love most about Jesse is not his list of accomplishments, but the how and the way that he has been able to engage and ignite a community. Jesse has created a cultural movement, and he has done so through empathy, compassion, creating clarity, and following his own authenticity. And in order to do all of those things, in order to cultivate real community, you have to show up vulnerably. You have to stand up or be willing to stand up in a room full of people and say, hi, this is me. This is what I am about. This is what I am struggling with. And can we all have a conversation about it? I remember attending one of the earliest Medi clubs, which was Jesse's format of meditation community in New York, and being so blown away by his openness and his willingness and ability to share. But what was the most powerful thing about those moments was not Jesse's sharing, but the community's sharing back. Today on the Fahrenheit podcast, we're going to unpack the idea of community and how you can create one through authentic vulnerability and not by giving, but by receiving, by allowing your community to create itself. Jesse, I'm so excited to have you today on the Fahrenheit podcast. You and I are old friends, which I don't think we quite realize until like a bit later on in our relationship, but would love to just kick off and have you introduce yourself to the Fahrenheit family. Absolutely. And first, I just want to shout out Hayden Hall, yes. freshman year dormitory NYU, where it all started. I've lived in New York for 15 years. I've never had as dope of an apartment as I did at Hayden Hall. <laughs> right. Like you get to right live. On the park. You live on Washington Square Park. I lived in the 15th floor penthouse, basically, <laughs> right on the park. Never had a better yeah. apartment than that one. Freshman year is all downhill from there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Although I will say that I was in a very special situation in Hayden Hall dormitory where I was in what, the equivalent of a little single studio apartment, but there were three of us grown men. <laughs> bunk beds squeezed into this little like 200 square foot room. It was a right. cool way to, to get to know New York. It was a cool way to get to know New York. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, my name's Jesse Israel. Hi to all the listeners. 
I'm the founder of The Big Quiet. My company hosts large-scale mass meditations with huge groups of people. And I also teach meditation. I'm a public speaker. I do a lot of work with executives and CEOs to help people connect with themselves, slow down, bring quiet into their lives in a world that's filled with so much noise. And I am good friends with Farron, but also greatly look up to Farron, not only as a, as a marketer and as a businesswoman, but also as a teacher. So I'm really excited to be here for this combo. I will say that when I think about people who have taught me or who I have looked up to as a teacher, it is also for a long time, always been you. And I have to say, when I think about meditation, and maybe we can start there, but when I think about meditation, I really feel like you were one of the first people that began introducing it to me. And when I say me, I think I mean a community of people and of us and the power of meditation, which I also feel like unlocks this conversation around mindfulness and what is mindfulness. How did meditation sort of become part of your world and what you teach? So- I was running a record label before I was doing the work. Oh, I remember that. (laughs) Yeah, I remember those days. It was actually sophomore year at NYU. So it's a year after we first met that I started this dorm room record label with with one of my roommates at a different dorm at NYU (laughs) called Broom Street Dorm. (laughs) Anyways, we started this label. We started working with a band called MGMT, who wound up becoming a huge band. Started the label when I was 20. By the time I was 23, I was already fully burnt out. And it was at 23 years old when I started to have panic attacks and was dealing with pretty debilitating anxiety. I was getting sick often. I had trouble sleeping. I was very freaked out about speaking in front of groups, more than 10 people. I, you know, I had panic around it and just was not feeling like I was connecting with myself or other people. And it didn't feel sustainable. I got into meditation as a way to help me work through some of those challenges because At that time, as a 23-year-old man building this kind of sexy record label business, I didn't feel like I could talk about some of that internal stuff that was going on. I didn't feel like as a man, I could speak about it in the music industry. There wasn't a lot of conversation around it. So meditation was this interpersonal solo way to explore some of that discomfort that I was going, that I was experiencing inside. And it was really valuable. It was in a rel- relatively short period of time of learning meditation. Vedic meditation was the style of meditation that really clicked for me. I met a teacher named Light Watkins who taught me. It really brought me a tremendous amount of relief. And I started to notice a lot of change in my world. At what point did you realize this was something I have to share with others? The core, I would say, question that I want to unwrap today is really around community. What is community and how do we create it and why is it important? which I think that both as a human and as a brand builder is a question I am constantly tackling. And I think that if you could be considered an expert in creating community, I would argue, Jesse, that you are one of the best, if not the best that I certainly know. And so I remember the early days of you getting involved in the world of meditation and what ultimately resulted in you creating community. So what was that spark or that moment for you that allowed you to say, okay, I need to start sharing this? What was interesting was that people started to come to me about it. Again, I was running a record label at the time. So I'd be at music festivals, you know, it'd be like a big hypey festival like Coachella. And I'd be off to the side meditating, not making a fuss out of it, but just, you know, I would take a little break from my friends and from, you know, the music industry thing. And I'd go and I'd sit down and I'd meditate for 20 minutes. And, you know, there'd be people running around partying, doing their thing. And then I would come back to the group, wouldn't say much about what I was doing, but I'd feel recharged. I'd feel clear. I have energy to go tackle the night, have a good time. And people would start to approach me about it. You know, they would say, like, what's going on? What are you doing over there? Like, you seem different. Like, what's changing in your life? 
people would come to me and say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with some stress and some anxiety. I know you do that, that weird meditation thing. Will you tell me if that could help me? So people started to express interest and I loved being able to share about how much it had helped me. I had been able to feel so much of the discomfort that can come from anxiety and that sort of heaviness that we can experience. That's so common to experience in our world. And I, I learned about this thing that helped me so much. So when people would ask me about it, I loved being able to talk about it and share it with them. So I started to bring a lot of, a lot of new students to my teacher light because I was meeting so many people who were going through those same challenges that I was going through. But what I started to notice was it wasn't just that people were interested in meditation. It was the reason why people were interested in meditation that really had a light bulb moment go off. I was like, wow, so many of my peers in the music industry, in the fashion biz, in finance, and, you know, DJs, bartenders, all these people that I knew kind of doing, you know, just young, active stuff in New York City, all were experiencing similar challenges around feeling lonely or isolated or comparing themselves deeply to their peers or experiencing debilitating stress or having those panic attacks or feeling depression, but nobody was talking about it. This was six, seven years ago or so before I was doing MediClub in the Big Quiet, and I was starting to notice this. And what I realized was, yes, people were interested in meditating, but also people just needed permission to be able to talk about what was really going on in their lives. And what I realized was that when I'd be at a music festival of all places, mm -hmm. and I would be meditating with other managers or other label people, or maybe even musicians, and after we'd meditate, people would honestly share some of the real shit they were going through. I realized, wow, this is powerful. For a group of us, you know, seen as, you know, successful young people in a business to be off to the side at a music festival, sharing in quiet, speaking vulnerably about what's really going on in our lives, feeling a sense of connection that I'd never felt before in the music industry in this sort of unique experience right there at a festival. I knew that there was something there. That was really the spark for what led to so much of the community building and teaching meditation and all of the stuff that we're going to get into. It feels like the ability to create space is so much a part of what made MediClub and the work that you've continued to do successful. What you just said, which is it wasn't just about creating a moment of togetherness for people to meditate together in the midst of this chaos at a music festival. It was also the sharing after the moment that it created for vulnerability and sharing. Why do you think that that's important as a tool or a vehicle for getting rid of anxiety or helping us to better manage the feelings or the emotions that we're experiencing in today's world? I think that ultimately it boils down to having a sense of belonging. And I know that this, this can be a buzzword that may not click for people. The way that I look at it is belonging is this, is the feeling that we get when we feel like we're a part of something human, when we feel like we're a part of something greater than ourselves with other people when we feel like we're seen and supported, when we're heard, when we're validated in our experiences, it can be really tough to have that experience today because we live such siloed lives with so much information that we're constantly inputting, so much comparison that occurs in the sort of false reality of social media. So it's really easy to feel disconnected, to not feel like we belong, to not feel like we're of use, like we're a part of something meaningful. And lots of people don't have meaningful friend groups. Lots of people don't have good relationships with their families. The amount of people that don't feel like they have a single person in their life that they can go to to just honestly share what's happening in their lives is staggering. And most recently, it's one in four Americans don't feel like they have that person. So when we are able to have permission 
to honestly speak about what's going on in our lives and other people are listening without judging and can share how they may be going through similar stuff. This is one of the most humanizing experiences. It's this feeling of, oh my God, you're going through that too? Oh, what a sense of relief to know that my experience is similar to someone else's experience. I'm a human. And my belief is that when we have space to be vulnerable and do it in a way that is appropriate, because I think vulnerability can be used inappropriately, when we do it in a way that's appropriate, we feel like we belong. And this is so incredibly powerful and liberating because it allows us to feel okay for who we are and what we're feeling. This is so important to just allow ourselves to feel okay in regards to where we're at in our lives and what's coming up for us. Two things just came to mind that I think are so interesting, which is the first, obviously here at Fahrenheit, we build brands and we do marketing. That's what we do. And I think part of the impetus for the Fahrenheit podcast was this idea that if ultimately brands are about creating connection and human connection, then a lot of what we navigate or a lot of what we try to accomplish as a brand is quite similar to what we try to accomplish as people. We want to have values and a mission and a purpose and a vision for our life. We want to be connected and we want to be real and authentic and have the platform you just said to be uniquely ourselves. So a lot of what I think I personally have been on a journey of navigating in my 20s, I also build that muscle for brands. And this idea of creating a sense of belonging is the ultimate of what every brand wants. Like we talk about it in branding as building a culture building a cult-like brand, which we know many of those, right? And I think that there are many we could we could point to, but building a cult-like followed brand, really what it comes down to is a community of like-minded people that want to and feel like they belong as part of that tribe. And then on a personal note, it's something that we're all searching for. And actually, while you were speaking, what I was thinking about was Fahrenheit, if I'm being really honest, and I hope my team doesn't listen to this, I've never felt like I belonged anywhere more than I belong at Fahrenheit. And part of it is, of course, that I'm crafting the culture, I'm creating the business, and I am the founder. But one of the most rewarding parts of building this company has been feeling like I belong to this team, sharing a unique set of values, sharing a mission and vision, creating a culture that feels right for us, where we absolutely have a platform to be authentically ourselves and open and vulnerable and real and raw, which was something that I felt like had been missing in my past. I think you and I have actually talked about this before, but I always felt like I had to compartmentalize myself. There was the business Farron that had to show up in certain rooms and places looking a certain way and acting a certain way. Then there was, quite frankly, what I used to call Jet Set Farron, which was the version of me that was more spiritual and traveled and liked to experience things. And I never felt like those two things could connect. And so what I did was I sort of searched for different tribes and communities to connect to each one. Whereas I guess one of the things I want to ask is how important is it to first and foremost, learn to be uniquely yourself before you can connect with wholly a community or a group of people and individuals? I think it's absolutely important. I think that it can feel daunting to make sense of who we are or to feel like we can really uniquely be ourselves or connect with ourselves because we don't have a lot of leadership or modeling around how to do that. Now, the reality is it's actually quite simple if the person who's leading a company or a brand or a community is able to get up in front of a group and say, hey, this is what's real for me. This is what my reality is right now. It's as simple as that, to be able to have someone lead and say, this is my truth, this is who I am, and to be able to own that 
it, it, it allows other people to start to do the same thing. It allows other people to start to feel like they can courageously do the same thing. I like to look at this through the lens of leadership. Brene Brown, who's the author of several great books, one in particular, Daring Greatly, which talks about courage through vulnerability, talks about a study that Harvard Business Review did around something that they referred to as the snowball effect in leadership. And what they looked at were two different types of leaders, leaders that got up in front of groups and kind of had that machismo style of leadership, like I always know, I always got this, let's do this kind of thing, which can be comforting and effective and sometimes maybe maybe feel a little disconnected. <laughs> and then there's this other style of leadership that they looked at, which is, which is referred to as a vulnerable style of leadership when a leader was able to get up in front of a group and say, I actually don't have the answer. This is what my real experience is. We're going through this together. Who else feels like they can contribute for a leader to get up in front of a group of people and say, I don't know, or to be vulnerable in some capacity requires a level of courage that ultimately, that courage ultimately responds and clicks more with the group of people who are following the leader, that the leader acting like they have the answer all the time. And what they saw was that people respond to that type of courage. They, they respond to that type of, this is uniquely who I am and where I'm at as a leader. And those followings grow as a result. That's where the snowball effect comes into play. Courageous leadership and demonstrating that courage allows a group to grow and allows someone's leadership to become stronger. So this is, um, I think, an interesting thing to look at to help people understand that just being ourselves and expressing our truth and creating cultures and environments where we can do that is an incredibly meaningful, powerful, and effective way to start that sense of connection like, like, like you're asking about. And I think it's, I think it's really important. Can vulnerability be misconstrued as weakness? And for any founders that are out there or leaders who are concerned about that, what would you say back to them and how would you help them to mitigate that risk? I would say that it's, it's really valid to feel that. Of course, it makes sense that people would feel that. Our culture very much reinforces that, especially when, with social media, when there's just, we just have this perception of everyone's greatness all the time we really feel like we need to have our shit together always and always have the answer. If we don't, it can feel like a form of weakness. Of course, it makes sense to feel that way. So the first thing I would say is it makes sense that we're going to feel that way. That's okay. Mm -hmm. Asking for a friend. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I'll say is that I think that there is time and space for how vulnerable we can be. And I think that this, this also relates to your question about how do we, how do we mitigate the perception of weakness around this stuff. And then to be more specific, there are periods where it's not yet ready to publicly be vulnerable. And there are periods where we can be. And an advisor of mine, when I was building MediClub, used to talk about when we're vulnerable, when we're really going to share with a group something deeply vulnerable, that the wound of whatever is creating that vulnerability has healed over enough where at least there's the formation of a scar. So you can share from the scar, not from the wound. And what that means specifically is when the scar is formed and there's some healing there, we can look at the experience and say, this is something I went through that was vulnerable, but I have some healing around it. I have some takeaway that I can share. I'm able to speak to some of my learning and perspective as opposed, and what that, and what that does when we share from the scar is it inspires in other people a sense of courage. It inspires in other people an opportunity to be able to say, ooh, I can relate to that, right? There are takeaways from it. This is when vulnerability is really powerful, when it allows other people to access their own power. But when we share from the wound, 
right? When the healing and the scarring hasn't occurred yet and we're still really deep in it, it's usually not the right time to go public with our vulnerability. That's when we share one-on-one with a peer, with a partner, with a therapist, whatever we may have access to. When we share from the wound and, and that scarring hasn't started to form, if we do it publicly, it can create an opposite effect on people, which is, oh man, I'm worried about this person. Or, oh shit, I, I feel like I got to figure out how to take care of this person. And again, that's okay when it's done privately. So understanding where you're at in your process of revealing your truth, are there things you can pull from? Are you in a place where there's enough scarring and healing where you can speak to your learnings and empower other people to step to the table versus too much in the thick of it? These, these are you know, just some basic frameworks to help understand. I don't find that to be basic at all. I actually feel like that is so wise and thoughtful. And the first thing that came to my mind was the moments where I know I was leading from the place of the scar versus Mm -hmm. the wound. And I think the wound, if you will, I actually think oftentimes that that creates a lack of trust and maybe also a lack of belief in your leader. I can name a ton of moments in my life where I feel like I was watching a leader or a mentor of mine even go through a really emotional experience and you can tell they're flying by instinct. There's a lot of emotion in it. And sometimes you start to wonder or debate or question their leadership ability. Whereas those moments where someone is communicating from the scar, there's a lot, I would say, more clarity. And we talk a lot about this, and we talked about this on an earlier episode of the Fahrenheit podcast with one of my greatest mentors, Mitra Manesh, the ability to look objectively, whether you're talking about business or your life experiences, but the ability to remove yourself momentarily from the emotion of the situation, to look at something from what I say as the 30,000 foot view, understand it, try to create clarity around it, and then communicate from that place of knowing or that place at least of reflection which I think can be a really powerful, I mean, the metaphor that you just gave, I feel like is one of the most powerful ways I've ever looked at it. It's operating from a place of vulnerability, not reactively, which is what often happens when you're really in the thick of it. I believe so much of how we act and operate comes from what we see in our culture, especially in our media and our social media, that we rarely see what's really happening behind the lens on social media, as as most of us know. And A lot of times social media misses the vulnerability or the real story. But every now and then we'll see the extreme opposite, which is we will see vulnerability, but it will be done in a way that can feel performative or something that's, you know, attempting to get likes or comments or can be done in a a way that feels it's still very much too ripe in the wound. So there is a call right now for people and for listeners to really think about how they can courageously find that middle ground. It's not about acting like everything's perfect. And it's also not sharing from that wound place in a a way that may lose people. How can we start to really explore a middle ground around communicating our learnings, our lived experiences in a way that can bring power to other people? And I like to challenge people to think about how they can do that. The comment you just made around performative vulnerability, I think is a really interesting one. And one that I definitely feel personally pressured to create. How so? As a female founder, first and foremost, I would also say as someone who just as a human lives and breathes on social media, I think there has been this real shift, this real trend, quite frankly, that has been created around being open, being real, being authentic, being vulnerable. What other words could we throw into the mix, right? That are constantly used in this very 
pressured way. And I often feel there are certain things that as a, as a woman, let's just call it as a human willing to share. And there are certain things that I don't feel ready to share, or maybe that for me don't feel right to share. And I do think that there is this been this trend, you know, if we think back to when you first started MediClub and those early days of you exploring and uncovering the world of meditation and mindfulness, now to today, you're performing on stages with 20,000 people in Oprah's recent tour. This ability to have conversations vulnerably is no longer in the shadows, but actually I think there's this other extreme happening, which is now there's pressure. There's pressure for founders to be raw and to be real and to be open. So I actually would love your perspective on why do people need to be vulnerable and why do we need to perform, if you will? And do you feel like that is something that you've been sensing in your work in leading founders, leading communities and leading groups? Well, one thing that I started to, to notice when MediClub started, and just to be clear for listeners, MediClub is, it's on pause because of the pandemic, but when we started it, 20 people in our, our mutual friend, UV Albert's apartment. It was, it was a group meditation and then it turned into a conversation and it was just an experiment and it, people really liked it. So we decided we would do it every month and it started to grow. More people coming to meditate and then to have these honest conversations. The big quiet was born out of that. It's been a really meaningful community. Now, what I learned at the early days of MediClub and I'm reminded of any time a MediClub happens is that when we are authentically vulnerable, Right? Not that performative vulnerability, but when we're, when we're authentically vulnerable and we're doing it from the scar, we're speaking our truth. We've had enough space from the challenge where we can share some of our learnings from it. We're, we're speaking specifically around our own experience. And then we open it up to the group to go, what do you think? How can you relate? What does this inspire in you? Right? This is, I think, a really meaningful approach to take for facilitating by using vulnerability. That when I've seen this happen, people lean in people really pay attention. People really feel like it's some, it's a human experience that, that, they're, that they're yearning for. Real connection occurs. After those events and after those types of shares, I would notice the word of mouth around that experience was, was on fire. People wanted to share about it and talk about it and post about it. What I think people, what it's demonstrated for me and what I think people have learned on social media is that vulnerability is actually quite popular. It's something that really people respond to. It can get lots of likes and comments, right? It really can be a way to engage people because that human experience is something that we all want. So I think that there is an understanding that, ooh, well, if I use vulnerability as a way to take more likes, to take more comments, if that's the mindset, ooh, well, maybe if I'm vulnerable, I'll get, you know, I'll get more activity around it. That's an off way to look at it. If we're able to look at it through the lens of, can what I'm sharing or how I'm leading be something that can give to people and help people, then we're on the right track. And I think the performative stuff often comes from, and that pressure often comes from a place of use that story so you can raise more money, so you can build a stronger customer base. And if that's the energy behind it, it's ultimately not going to be effective. It really reminds me of something we were touching on earlier, which is should. Should founders or entrepreneurs or creatives or humans be vulnerable? Should you share authentically with your team or your audience the journey that you're on or what you're going through? I guess my question to you is, should you? What would you respond to someone who is feeling the pressure 
but hasn't quite found the authentic vulnerability of where they feel both comfortable and able to give. I'm a big proponent of never pushing and forcing vulnerability or vulnerable leadership or vulnerable sharing. If we don't feel comfortable doing it or we don't feel like we have the right tools or support to go there, that it's not the right time to. What I will say, though, is that it always feels uncomfortable. (laughs) It's scary to be able to speak our truth in the face of a culture that doesn't really help us understand how to do it effectively. I remember the very first MediClub where my whole career now is built out of, out of essentially that first moment, this first experiment. The idea was let's come together and meditate. And then when we're done meditating, I was going to speak a little bit about where I was at. I had just left a career in the music industry. I was about to turn 30. I had no idea what I was going to do next in my work. I was doing a lot of comparison to my peers. There was a lot of self-doubt, uncertainty coming up. It was uncomfortable, but I was acting like I had my shit together and people saw me as this guy who had this successful label, but this, my reality was so different. And it was actually kind of lonely to hold that and not speak about it. So at that first MediClub, after we meditated, I felt like I was in a place where I was able to just say, honestly, hey, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm going through. These are some of the things I'm learning from that experience. But I just want to honestly say, this is what's happening for me in my world. And I was so close to pivoting that talk, that little share that I was going to do with the group to, you know, something about meditation. I'm talking about the science of meditation, which is great, but a very different thing. It was safer. But I really pushed myself to go to that place because I knew. I knew that I was ready to be able to honestly speak to my experience and share some of my learnings around it. So I went for it, even though it was so uncomfortable. And then I paused after I shared and I said, what does this bring up for? And can anyone relate to this? And it was silent for like five seconds. And it was an awful feeling. I was like, oh my God, what have I done? I've ex- I felt so naked. <laughs> but then one person started to share their experience and so did the other and the other and other. And I was like, wow, this is how it works. There's a ripple effect that can really be born. So to bring a full circle with your question, I think it's always going to feel uncomfortable, but I think we have to intuitively feel into, am I ready to do this? Is this the right setting? Do I have the right tools and support to be able to do this? Or am I not quite there yet? I'm not a big believer in the shoulds. I think so much of how we make decisions comes from intuitive gut feelings. It's part of why I love meditation because I think it really refines the ability to connect with that gut feeling with that intuition. We actually recorded a real team meeting. When we started this conversation of the team meeting, we just had this instinct that this meeting might be worth sharing. To your point, that it actually might give back to others who are going through the same thing. We felt like it was a fruitful dialogue around burnout and these feelings of burnout that we're all facing. And I vulnerably had to talk about where as a leader, I set right examples and where maybe my my workaholicness and passion for what I do doesn't set great examples. And One of the most powerful moments was a girl on our team expressed feelings of being a fraud. She expressed feelings of not knowing what to do and not feeling good enough. And we said to the group, there's about 15 of us on the call. We said, who here feels this feeling? And all 15 people raised a hand. Every person on the group, including myself, has moments where we feel like we're faking it or we feel like we're not good enough. And I think in that moment, the immediate reaction that she had was, oh my God, I can't believe other people feel the same way. There's so much power. Back to the question earlier of how do we create community? There is power in knowing you are not alone. 
And I do think that one of the most beautiful parts of what you do is allowing people to feel like they are not alone in what that in what they are going through in real human ways. I love this idea of communicating and sharing in service of others. How has serving others helped you to be a better leader? Thanks for sharing some of these reflections around how you're using these tools. Yeah. Because I actually think it's so important for leaders like yourself to be able to share in meetings, recording meetings, of course, everyone's permission, yeah. <laughs> and then sharing them publicly and, and talking about this stuff. Like really kudos to you for implementing this stuff and helping other people see the value in it. When it comes to service and when it comes to uh, our work as it relates to service, and this is true for my work and anyone's work, the thing that I'm always thinking about is what are the needs of our time? What are the needs that we see around us in the world around us that we feel like we can uniquely give ourselves to so we can create solutions for? There's something that comes up a lot when I when I speak or if I, you know, you mentioned being on tour with Oprah right before the pandemic. For 10 weeks, I was on this Oprah tour at every tour stop at a, you know, in a sold out stadium or arena of people. I'd get on stage, I'd give a talk, I'd lead a meditation. Oprah and I would have a conversation together. It was pretty nerve wracking at first, as one could imagine, especially as a guy who used to not be able to sleep for a full night of sleep if I had to give a, you know, a 10-person presentation in college. <laughs> Oprah and I actually talked about that progression and evolution together on stage, which is really cool. But the reason why I'm bringing this up is because when I notice that I'm going to go on stage and give a talk or lead a meditation or do a podcast or whatever, and those nerves start to come up that I know so many of us can relate to. Absolutely. And this is really common when it comes to public speaking, I have this practice where I pause and I look at the nervousness and I go, okay, how much of this nervousness is coming from me being concerned about how I am going to look, how I will be perceived? How much of this is coming from me worrying about me, mm. right? And then usually that's the majority of yeah. it. <laughs> if I'm going to do a talk in, in front of you know a C-suite at a huge company, I want to impress these executives I want them to think I'm smart. I don't want them to think I'm a wellness weirdo. You know, like, you know, all these things will come up. The shift that I make in this example, and I think it's a great tool for leaders to use in general, regardless of public, public speaking, is I go, instead of looking at this through the lens of how am I being perceived, I shift it to how can what I'm about to share and say be something that can help people? And there's something really liberating in this when I'm able to go, okay, I'm going to get up there. I'm going to do my talk. I'm going to be me. I'm going to communicate about what I believe in, share my truth, and know that the people in that room or in that audience that needed to hear it and get something out of it will. And the people that aren't ready to hear it or aren't going to connect with it, they won't. That's okay. So when I'm able to make a framing that goes from me, me, me to how can I help the group? How can I be of service to a need? It's liberating. That is so powerful because I think... It is a natural human instinct to worry about you. And I could argue like there are places where we feel comfortable naturally. As I said earlier, I feel super comfortable with my team. I really can lean into the objective of getting what I need to done when I'm with them. And I have no ego in the room. And that getting rid of the ego has been something I've worked on for many years. We've in fact actually had conversations about it. But I can't help, of course. But when I'm in front of a potential new client or I'm in front of 
an old boss, wanting to really impress. That's just a natural human thing. And we spend so much time focusing on the, I want to impress. I want to look smart. I want them to think I'm doing incredible. I mean, by the way, how many of us can relate this to an old relationship? When you run into an ex and you just really want them to think you're at your complete best, right? (laughs) Right, right. Totally. Totally. So I really can relate to that. And I think that you know, if we were to approach this conversation today by saying, what is the most powerful thing we could give to this audience who's listening today? What is the most valuable tool or resource that we could share with the audience today? The whole energy shifts and it does allow you to be more focused on others than on yourself. To me, focusing on others and giving back and what was so powerful in the early days about MediClub was you were so willing to share. And I'm bringing it back to the beginning a lot because I think for a lot of people on this podcast and for those listening, building a community is a constant muscle you have to work. And it is a challenge for business leaders and for community leaders and for those of us who are seeking community in our own life. And you've quote unquote successfully done it. And I say quote unquote, because I think that it is such a personal thing. I don't think there is a roadmap for how you build a successful community. But I think one of the core things I witnessed in watching you was giving back to others and sharing that vulnerability as a vehicle for impacting others, not for making yourself look a certain way. Thank you. Thank you for seeing that and saying that. And you should know that it has been a real journey Mm -hmm. because I really tortured myself for several of the early years of MediClub and the Big Quiet, dealing with and, and kind of beating myself up in regards to all these things that we're talking about. The fraud and imposter syndrome that you and your team talked about. Oh my God, for me to like, go from being a guy running a record label to, to suddenly being a dude who's organizing group meditations. I felt like such a phony. Who was I to be creating that space? <laughs> the comparison to other people, the fear around being vulnerable, right? So much of this stuff has, I, I've been challenged by. When we're talking about how this relates to community and we talk about how this relates to giving back and service, I like to really look at it through the lens of how we existed in tribes, So much of this interest in community today and that need and that biological call to be a part of something comes from how we existed for our great majority of time on this earth as a human species, living in tribes. It's only been about 10,000 years since all of us lived in tribes, but we've been around for hundreds of thousands, arguably million plus years. So biologically, we know life living in group. And here we are today, especially the past 50 years, where so much has changed from a, techno, you know, from a technology standpoint, where it's really easy to feel like we're not a part of group. And the thing I wanted to highlight, which I think is really interesting, is when we lived in tribes, we had specific roles that were clear to us as ways to give back to the greater group so we could survive as a tribe. We needed to all be giving to this tribe to be able to survive. We all had a clear purpose around how we could contribute so the tribe could thrive. A connection to purpose and a connection to feeling like we were giving to something was just inherently part of our survival, right? So it's like built into us to want to do that. We actually get rewarded. The Mm -hmm. hormone oxytocin gets released in our blood when we contribute, when we're a part of some form of a group. And oxytocin is the hormone that makes us feel happy and a sense of well-being and loyalty and all this you know, beautiful stuff, right? So we're actually, our body gets rewarded for doing it. When we were in tribes, tribes would go through periods of famine. And there were periods where members of the tribe would have to get left out because there wasn't enough food for, for people. The first people that would go 
were the people that were contributing the least. So this fear of rejection or failure or the sense of wanting to be liked, like you were mentioning, it's just sort of this sort of natural feeling to want to be liked, makes sense. Because when we lived in tribes, if we weren't liked, <laughs> we were most certainly going to die. You're out <laughs> of the tribe, you're done for. So of course we want to feel that. But what's interesting is the people that were held up and honored in the tribe were the people that were contributing most to the group. You look at how things operate today, things have changed a lot. Our culture doesn't really celebrate, doesn't necessarily celebrate the figures that are contributing most to the world around us. A lot of what we celebrate is more about personal success, especially in Instagram culture, right? So it's just interesting to look at where this comes from, from a biological standpoint, to see how it's gotten changed today. But what we see and what we know is the more we can align ourselves, our work, our leadership, our roles in our families with our friends, the more we can align these roles with how we can get clear about how we are contributing to something beyond ourselves, consistently we see we live more fulfilling lives. Consistently we see greater levels of happiness. But it's tough because so much of our focus in culture today is about me, me, me. How can I generate more? So how do we bring these two things together? This is what ultimately what it's about. I run a for-profit business, but the focus of my business what we create, what we do is based off of how we can contribute and the need that we can serve. And what I see is that you can make good money, you can create a great livelihood and build a great career and have a great team while also focusing not only on the bottom line, but really making the bottom line be, how are we solving for a need right now that people that people are, are in need of? In brand building, when we're building a strategy for a brand, we're always looking at the why. The why do we exist? But what's really interesting about the question you're asking is the what are we contributing, which is actually a very different frame. For me, one of the things I'm thinking is there's the building of a brand and of a business and the why we exist is super important. It's critically important to understanding where you grow and where you operate. But in terms of creating real connection and arguably a community, if that is something you are trying to build and create rooting in this question of what are we going to contribute to this tribe, to this conversation, could be a really interesting way to look at it really as the starting point. And I don't know that I've ever really asked myself. I think I've asked myself the question of what are we contributing to the world in the sense of a business? What is the product or service or offering? But in terms of contributing to others in service of others, it's actually a much different energy really more than anything right. around the question. For those on the Fahrenheit podcast that have been following along with our homework that we've been talking about on every episode, I feel like that's a really interesting takeaway is to, to really ask yourself the, what can I give back or contribute to the world? And I can tell you actually at Fahrenheit, here's a really great example. I have always had a passion for working with, with founders. When I was in full-time roles at every company from Michael Kors to Sweetgreen, there was not a day, honestly, that went by where in my after hours, I wasn't on the phone with an early stage founder answering questions, helping them think about who they should hire, connecting them with a creative that I knew. Like it's always been something that's fueled me. The giving back to others who are building businesses and helping them build is a place that I found a lot of passion. And so at Fahrenheit, we have sort of this, I would say it's an informal mission, which we talk about, which is how do we democratize great branding? And part of why we started this podcast was because we are limited in the amount of clients we can serve. We are limited in time, resources. 
as a self-funded company, right? We're growing as fast as I can physically help us grow, but we're self-funded, we're limited in bandwidth, and we're also, quite frankly, limited from a budget perspective of the type of client we can take on. But the Fahrenheit podcast was actually built in service of others. It was, we are constantly learning and evolving how to be better brand builders and better leaders and marketers. Let's create an open forum where anybody can listen and engage in this conversation and where we can, for free, quite frankly, share the information and the learnings that we have with more people to help them go build better brands, right? For the single founder out there that's on their own hustling, figuring all this out on their own, how can we be of service? And I think that that's a really powerful reframe to think about how you start to create community. Yes, I love hearing all that. The way that I would take it one step further, for listeners who are really thinking about how they can meaningfully build community in whatever capacity, I think the most powerful thing that we can do to build community is to get really clear about how the community member can contribute to the community. To me, is this is the difference between an event and a community gathering. An event, like a panel or a concert, there's someone on stage talking, performing, the audience receives it. It's one way. The audience takes something from it and they go on their way. We can think of lots of brands where that's the relationship with the customer. A community gathering, and when it really starts to become a community, is when that experience isn't just one way. It's not just the person on the stage doing something and then the person in the audience takes it away. Community gathering creates the space for the audience member, the community member, to also contribute for it to become two-way. This is why at MediClub, it wouldn't just be me contributing by standing up and sharing my vulnerable story with the group, but we would then create the time for people to break up into groups and share amongst themselves. And then we make the time for people to stand up and share in front of the bigger group. It was constantly looking at how can the community member also contribute to the experience because it really becomes a community when people feel like they're giving to it, just like we would give to tribes, just like we felt like we were of use, that oxytocin piece, that feeling of contribution. So when a brand can think, and I think this is true for a lot of the best brands that have effectively built community, if that's through in-person experiences or if that's in online ways, when the customer has a clear way where they can actually contribute to the experience that that brand is creating in some way, that's when this stuff gets really powerful. People want to be of use. They want to be heard. They want to feel like they're important. And we're living in a time where it's really easy to not feel like we're needed. So when we can create that, it's very powerful. I think that the last few months during COVID and this pandemic have made a lot of us feel more isolated and alone. And I think have made us also in some ways be more focused on ourselves. In fact, I talked about on an earlier podcast as you might know, I lived with my sister and my brother-in-law and their two-year-old Henry for part of the pandemic. And then I didn't. And what I recognized was that for three months of the pandemic, I was in service of a two-year-old. Every minute of the day was about him. Waking up at seven in the morning or on Sunday six when he woke up, who's doing bath time? Who's putting him to bed at night? What are the meals for the day? And in the moment, I didn't recognize actually how beneficial and powerful it was to be in service of somebody else. It wasn't until I left him that I realized actually how fulfilled and happy I was and what right, a beautiful right. journey and experience it was really working for him, quite frankly, <laughs> but being his slave for a handful of months. And I think it was a really strong reminder of the sense of belonging. And really, if I'm being taking it even one step further, it was actually the feeling of being needed. I'm 35 I am single 
I just moved out of my apartment in New York City, which was really the only civility that I had and have decided to sort of take the next few months as a bit of a journey for myself. But it was the feeling needed that I think really made me feel super connected in that moment. If you think about that on the other side, right, which is as brand builders, as leaders, as community leaders, whatever you are and however you want to apply this to your life, tapping into how to make your customer or your audience or your community feel needed and feel important is an incredibly powerful place to begin. Bingo. That's it. We all just want to feel needed. That's really the, the core of this. We all want to feel like we belong. Yeah, it's such a meaningful way to experience connection with other humans, which at, at the end of the day, I think is, is really our greatest need. I think it's the thing that we crave most. Let me ask you a question, Yeah, if I may. I love that you just shared with your listeners a, a little bit about your own personal experience, your age, your relationship status, leaving this city that you've lived in your whole adult life. And you mentioned earlier briefly a little bit about some of the shoulds and pressures that, that you've experienced given your situation. And, and here you are breaking free and saying, fuck it, I'm going to do it differently. Just for a second, I'm just curious here, what's it been like for you when so many of our peers are living very different lives for you to say, I'm going to go out on my own path and do it differently, regardless of what I think I should be doing in quotations. In a very vulnerable share here, I would say I was recently in Mexico and a friend of mine listened to the entire podcast. After a couple of days together and I expressed where I was at in my personal life, a really interesting thing that he said was, you sound on the podcast like you have it all together. And I said, well, I do have it all together in certain areas. There are certain things I feel really clear on. And in fact, those are the things that on the Fahrenheit podcast, we're exploring and learning and sharing. And I've mentioned many times on the podcast that there might be clarity in one place of your life and then there's lack of clarity in others. It is not binary. And in fact, as humans, I think we are constantly evolving and learning. There are moments of the day that I wake up and I feel as a founder, like I know exactly what I'm doing. And four minutes later, I'm in a complete fraud syndrome, panic attack, feeling like I have no idea what I'm going to do. And so I think, first of all, I just want to sort of say as a pin in this point, which is vulnerability can transform and can change. Whereas we can be really clear and feel like we've got it all together in one area, there still are always opportunities and places where we're going to grow. And you don't have to be connected to any of those in a way that feels like you're holding back, like it's concrete. And being vulnerable has been something that took me a long time to be too. Jesse and I, we've talked about this, but I think I look back on moments of my leadership in the past where vulnerability would have served me so well. And I wasn't in a place with my level of confidence, with my connection or conviction within myself to be able to do that. And it's taken me a long time to get there. Being vulnerable on this Fahrenheit podcast about work, I've also touched a bit on my personal life and being where we're at, what society tells you is that at this point of my life, I should be married. I should have children. I should be living in what we consider a home of some sorts and have that stability. When in fact, many of those things have eluded me or have been challenged by a variety of circumstances or choices that I've made. And I found myself in a position where I'm not there. And being able to not only accept it, but look at it as an opportunity or look at the beauty in it has been something I've recently tried to do. And so I spent the early days of the pandemic, like many of us, looking at all of the things in my life that I felt were challenged or negative. And what I was missing was actually looking at it from the lens of an opportunity. So yes, I may not be married or have children 
or have a home to tend to at the age of 35. But what I do have is the ability to be mobile, to explore and experience, to go try new things, to live a bit of an adventurous moment, really to do anything. And I felt really suffocated in the beginning of the pandemic by these feelings of fear. In fact, I was actually quite paralyzed. I felt like I couldn't make any decisions of what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go, or what moves I wanted to make in my life. I don't know if anyone else out there is feeling these feelings, but I felt super paralyzed by what was going on in the world. And about a month ago, I said, fuck it. And I said, I've been committed to this negativity for long enough. I've had a real discipline around the shoulds and feeling bad about myself and feeling bad about my life and really being mean to myself about it. So I'm going to release that and I'm going to be committed now to the positivity. So I packed up my apartment, closed out my lease, packed two bags, and I am now on this journey of trying to reap all the benefits of being at the place in my life where I am now. Instead of looking at it through a negative frame, I'm going to just give myself a break and look at it through a positive frame. I sort of was like, okay, you did that. You know, you spent the year in the negative space. Like you did a good job. You were deeply committed to it. You did a good job. You really ran that course. Try something new. And I have to say, it's been super liberating. And what's really interesting is I will say this also very personal. What I found is that when I release the shoulds of where I should be, I also have more time to focus on what I actually want. And one of the things I've recognized is that a lot of the shoulds that society tells me as a 35-year-old woman that I should be doing, a lot of them are not actually what I want right now. Right. This is such a huge message. Such a huge message and also super liberating. I really have created the space to be able to say like, forget what society tells you. Do you even want those things? Right. Are those things even where you're really at? So I don't know if you've experienced anything similar during this pandemic, but I think for me, this ability to, or this moment to say, let's get rid of the shoulds, both as a leader and as a woman and as a a daughter, a sister, all of the things that I am, I've just tried to remove the shoulds and instead focus internally to say, what feels good for me? What feels right for me? What do I think I can contribute, I guess, in some capacity? And actually from that place, I found that I'm feeling happier, although it's the beginning of my experiment. So I'll report back later, but that's where I'm at. Well, what I think is so powerful about what you just shared, and I'm so glad that you spoke to this and you spoke to it so honestly, is that my belief, and I'll speak to how it relates to me in a sec, but my belief is when we give ourselves permission to just be on our own unique path, regardless of what other people's paths look like. We just give ourselves permission to love ourselves for the journeys that we're on and drop those shoulds and just focus on what we can really love in our lives, regardless of how it's different. When we click with that versus that other place you were in, where it was just all of the the behind, I'm comparing myself to others. I feel like I should be doing this, right? When we're in this place of just loving where we're at, loving our own unique path, the energy that we start to bring to everything is different. What we start to magnetize and call into our lives change. And it's really interesting. I'm really excited to see how these next couple of months start to evolve in regards to whatever it is that you're looking for. Because my belief is that when we're in that place of joy, when we're giving ourselves permission to just feel joy in our lives for where we are, we naturally magnetize more stuff. And for me, the experience that I had was it was similar in that for the first several years of running the big quiet and, and doing my thing, I went from being a guy who saw, saw success by, you know, working with, with a, a band that did well 
and having this label. And for all my twenties, kind of had this cool, sexy business and had a tech fund and you know, all this stuff. And I left it right, right before I turned 30 to go give myself to ultimately organizing group meditations. Yeah. Now, <laughs> you know, for, for the first three years of doing this work, I couldn't let go of the fact that even though it felt so good and I felt so called to a sense of purpose to build community and to share these experiences that we've been talking about. And I felt so alive doing it. I couldn't help, but constantly feel like I was doing something wrong. It was like, I should be running a startup that's just raised $20 million. I should be working my way up some sort of, you know, corporate ladder or whatever it was, you know, just constantly seeing my peers. I should be married by this age. I should have a one home, maybe two homes mm -hmm. like some of my peers have, right? Yeah. <laughs> Even though I had this thing in my life that was, that was creating this sense of fulfillment, I was always doing that, that negative thinking, like you mentioned. And it was about two years ago where I said, man, fuck it. I'm wasting so much energy taking this approach. And yes, a lot of my peers are very successful financially and they have families and they're different situations. I'm also single like friends like you. <laughs> But yes, my friends may have all these things. But once I was able to go, you know what? My path is different. And there's a lot to love about this journey that I'm on and what's unique about it. And to start to focus on that and everything shifted. And it wasn't too long after that where like financially, my business started to change, where a relationship was built with people that I really respect, including people that inspired me to start the, this work in the first place, like Oprah, people I never thought I would meet, let alone be on tour with and share the stage with all these things started to come in. Once I gave myself permission to just be me and have the experience that I was, that I was having. It's so powerful. I had the same experience when I first started Fahrenheit. You know, as you know, I went from being on the path to CMO at a fast paced, high growth, sexy startup with a name brand that when my parents introduced me at meals, they could be proud of, you know? Uh, like, right, 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 right. I mean, there was never a wedding or bar mitzvah <laughs> that I went to where I didn't say like, I work for Michael Kors or Sweetgreen where people didn't freak yeah. out. I mean, literally like <laughs> no better introduction, right? And then I went to being like, I run a no-name branding agency that no one's ever heard of that's starting out and I'm bootstrapping out of my apartment. And I think that an area where I've been able to unlock an area where I've been able to really find myself and be less concerned with what others are doing or with what people think or say I should be doing is in the business. And I think part of it was the feeling of belonging, of joy, and just of passion and excitement that I started to feel when I was one in the driver's seat. I think for me, that was a really big learning was a lot of, I think, the negativity that I'd been facing in myself in my entire career was at the end of the day, like I just wanted to be my own boss was just like a huge learning was the minute that I was able to be my own boss and create the culture that I wanted and build the team that I wanted and do the things that I'm uniquely good at, a whole level of negativity was removed from my life and from my career that I had been feeling that I didn't know why I was feeling. And because I really wasn't being authentic to myself because I was petrified. I felt all of those feelings of fear and of fraud. And I remember the first time I got paid as a consultant being like, I can't believe someone's paying me to do this, right? I still, to this day, sometimes I'm like, I can't believe, you know, I still feel shocked when we get paid. If someone had come down and said to you 10 years ago, Jesse, go follow your path, go follow your passion, go follow what is uniquely right for you and what you are willing to give to the world and you will be on stage with Oprah, you would have never believed them, right? Like right, I never right. thought that I would be able to build Fahrenheit, which really is just an expression of what I want to give to the world and what I'm uniquely good at. And yet by following our truth in some way, 
the real message is you can be successful and you can create a real community around it. And applying that to your personal life, for me, that's where it's been a struggle. Applying that to my personal life has been hard, harder than it has been for me professionally, for sure. Mm, mm. Yeah, it makes sense. What I love about what we're talking, or what we're talking about here is, you know, uh, my, my belief is that all of us are capable, regardless of where we're at in our lives or our level of privilege, we're all capable giving ourselves to a unique path, to giving ourselves permission to have a life that looks different than our peers and to explore it in ways that are uniquely right for us. And in doing so, it can be really scary. And in doing so, it can feel really lonely. And in doing so, a lot of stuff comes to the surface while we give ourselves to our unique paths. But my opinion is that that's important. The discomfort that we experience in our lives while we give ourselves to the things that we're really here to do is important. And that in a way, it's almost like one of my mentors talks about when we experience the discomfort or the self-doubt or the imposter syndrome, whatever those icky feelings are while we're giving ourselves to the things that we believe in, that it's like a form of earning our stripes. Mm -hmm. That feeling that discomfort is crucial because it strengthens us into the people that we are. And I love that you and I can talk about that and share that. And I'm sure so many of your listeners are on their own journeys and can relate to, to to the same path. One of the things I think about that's similar to what you just said is the best of lessons are the ones that are the most expensive. And by most expensive, I mean most challenging, difficult, uncomfortable. Out of that moment of uncomfort, I think often comes the most rewarding and the most beautiful and the most brilliant. Building Fahrenheit was a journey. First of all, I spent, and I was talking about this day with my team, I spent like three years basically paying myself nothing. I spent a lot of time dealing with my own ego, my own shoulds, ultimately to get to where I am today. And I am so grateful for that journey. Like every night that I stayed up feeling those feelings of uncomfort, I am so grateful for because first they allowed me to come to this place now of comfort in where I am today, but they also allowed me to have so much gratitude. I am so grateful because I went through that journey, because I went through those challenging moments. And I think that that is the shift that I'm also trying to create in the personal life, right? What I said before about being so deeply committed, you were talking about wasting your time, wasting time thinking about what other people were doing, thinking about where you should be. Like we spend so much time as leaders and as individuals, I feel like deeply committed to the negativity within ourselves. If you take the time that you spend in self-doubt in anxiety, and just even 10% try to shift that to positivity or confidence. Someone once said to me, like, you're so committed to your negative stories. And I think like, listen, going through the journey that I went through on the personal side of the fence, going through a divorce, it's ironic because I'm talking about it right now, but I've actually started to create this muscle in myself of no more talking about it. Why? Because of the magnetized energy that you were talking about, which is I'll talk about it in a vulnerable way, but I spent two years talking about it. I did my job there. Like, again, I was deeply committed to that conversation. Whereas now I want to talk about the future. I want to talk about the things I want. I want to start to create a magnet of energy around the things that are going to fuel me and that I can help to fuel others with. Instead of being committed to the story, the negativity. Like, I remember I used to be really committed to a story that I was bad in math. At some point in my journey as an entrepreneur, I had bosses or leaders or others who would like constantly tell me I was bad at math. And I was committed to that story. And I'll never forget, I went to Tony Robbins. And one of the questions in one of the groups that I talked about was this story that I'm committed to, which is that I'm bad at math. And someone in the group said to me, 
all the time you spent talking about or thinking about that you're bad at math, imagine if you just got a math tutor. (laughs) 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 And I was like, that is a fair point. Like I would be a wizard. (laughs) 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 That's an example of something I just got rid of. I was like, I'm done. I'm done with that story. I'm done talking about it. I'm done believing it. I don't even know who created it. Where are the facts on it? But instead of that, I'm going to focus on what I'm, instead of what I'm not good at, what I'm a superhero at and try and bring that to the world instead, which ultimately creates that magnet that we're talking about. What are you a superhero at, Jesse? I just want to say that I, I love what you said. And I really, really believe that we all have the power to just put to rest those stories that we've attached ourselves to so much of our lives. I love your math example. And the way that you eventually just said, hey, I'm ready to end this story. Like, I really believe we are all capable of that. And I think just a great reflection for listeners is to think about like, what are the areas in our lives where we have those same stories? Like that math, like I'm I'm bad at math story. And where are we ready to start to say, you know, I'm going to put that story in the past. It's time to create some new energy around it. So that's awesome. Thank you for these reflections. Superhero, uh, superpower. What was it? Superpower? Yeah, what are you a superhero at? What's your superpower? (laughs) <laughs> I actually did this exercise when I left my label and didn't know what I wanted to do next and was in this sort of transition period. And I mentioned I was feeling all sorts of feels around it. But I did this exercise where I went to five people that I really respected, that I felt like really saw me and knew me for who I was, mm. some family, some friends, some work related. And I just said, what do you see are my gifts? What are my unique gifts? This is a really hard exercise. Mm-hmm. And it's also really hard to receive for whatever reason. Everyone said the same thing. And it was funny because at the time I wasn't proud of these things. I was like, how am I going to create my, you know, $1 billion tech startup based on these things? I should be <laughs> able to I monetize heard... my superpower. <laughs> yeah, right. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> totally. What I heard them share are things that I believe are my superpowers. And the first was, I was hearing people, people say that I lead in a unique way. And we've talked about this. My style of leadership is really about sharing my personal story to help other people understand how they can feel empowered through their own lived experience. I believe that I have an ability to hold up a mirror through the way that I lead. I'm able to hold up a mirror to help other people see what's important and great and powerful within themselves simply by sharing my own story. And the other thing that I was told, which I believe is another superpower of mine, is I have a unique ability to gather people. Bringing people together is something that I just have a knack for and I feel innately called to and I think I'm really good at it. And it's been interesting to have experiences in my life where I've been incredibly burnt out from it. And I'm just for years up into the pandemic, a couple of years of just not feeling called to do that at all, even though it was one of my great gifts. And then coming out of the first quarantine and really feeling energized to start to do that again. It's almost like it had to get fully pulled away from me for me to start to get some of that energy back. We'll see what happens because we're still not at a place where I can fully flex into that. Between leadership and gathering people, those feel like my unique superpowers. For somebody who's craving to find community, for someone out there who feels alone and is trying to find a group of people or connect with others in a real and vulnerable way about their experience, where would you tell them to start? I encourage people to, to start to create their own community. I really believe that anyone is capable of starting to grow their own community. And I know that when we think of growing community, we can think of huge events and tons of people and it can feel very daunting. And it's very easy to go, well, I'm not charismatic or I don't have a business background or whatever the stories may be in regards to why we can't do that. 
I like to encourage people to think about just the small steps that we can take to create a sense of togetherness. And I've seen this done in so many cool ways. I've seen it in a couple of really interesting ways throughout the pandemic. A mutual friend was like, hmm, we can't get, this at the start of the quarantine. He's like, we can't get together and do stuff. He's like, we're all watching lots of movies and Netflix. So he started a little text thread with some friends and was like, hey, I want to start a movie club. And every night at 7 p.m., we'll watch the same movie. Even though we can't be together, we'll press play at the same time. I love that. And then, you know, we can text throughout the movie and, you know, make jokes or we'll talk about it afterwards. Slowly, this has grown into this whole movie club. It's like a WhatsApp with tons of people. People that want to be a part of it can have this shared experience, knowing that there's something that's happening at the same time for other people. And I love it. The guy who started it, not necessarily someone who is a community builder, has expertise around it. He's like, I just want to do something that will create a sense of joy with other people. And, you know, it can just be one or something you do with one or two other people. But the way that I encourage people to think about it is, What's something that you love, something that you're passionate about, or something that brings you joy that can be shared with other people? My community building experiences all began with my cheeseburger club. I loved eating cheeseburgers. I loved eating. I loved hanging out with my buddies. We formed a 10-person burger club. And every two weeks, we'd get together and have cheeseburgers. And it was it essentially became men's group. I would love we were, to be in that so club. Close. I'd love to be in that club <laughs> right now. So, you know, getting creative, having fun, and just extending an invite to a couple of people. This is how we can start to do it. We bring the power of community leadership into our own hands. So often on these calls and on podcasts in general, not Fahrenheit, but in general, I feel like you hear these ideas or these tips or these tricks that feel so daunting. And what I love about this is it's like, start small, reach out to a couple of people, have a conversation open the floor for others. Think about the impact or what you want to, the impact you want to make or what you want to bring to them. And so, Jesse, thank you so much for this conversation. I feel like we could go on for hours, but I'm going to give you back, you know, the rest of your day. But I loved this feedback and this idea of really starting small and making an impact on others as a means to create community for yourself is where I definitely will, will start and think about how I can begin. And we loved having you. You are always welcome here. We will share all of the information on the Medi Club and Big Quiet and all of the ways that you can engage with Jesse and his communities on Fahrenheit, Instagram, and social. Thank you so much for having me, Farron. I love this convo. I love you. I love you and too. I just love that you demonstrated what we're talking about live for everyone to see. I mean, this is, this is powerful leadership. So thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you. 